Thank you, Peter. Again, welcome to the Blue Note Salon. I'm Faye Anderson. I'm director of All That Philly Jazz, which is a place-based public history project. We're documenting Philadelphia's jazz venues from the Aqua Lounge to Zanzibar Blue. In 2001, the National Museum of American History designated April as Jazz Appreciation Month. This year's theme is justice. So it's fitting that we are holding this community conversation about art, activism, and social change in the name of one of Philadelphia's legendary jazz clubs, the Blue Note, which was located at 15th Street and Ridge Avenue in, in North Philly. A few years ago, cultural critic and jazz biographer Stanley Crouch observed, I quote, jazz was always an art, but because of the race of its creators, it was always more than music. Once the whites who played it and the listeners who loved it began to balk at the limitations imposed by segregation, jazz became a futuristic social force in which one was finally judged purely on the basis of one's individual ability. Jazz musicians such as Billy Bourne, Billie Holiday, John Coltrane, Nina Simone, and Max Roach spoke to their times. This week, as you probably know, Kendrick Lamar was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for music for his studio album, Damn. The Pulitzer Board said the album captured the complexity of modern African-American life. Artists, like the ones we have here, reflect the times in which they live. So we have assembled a stellar panel of artists, activists, who work at the intersection of art, community engagement, and social change. So let me introduce them. It's not in order, so when I call your name, just wave it. Um, Joshua Rupera, Ropera, please pronounce. Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Joshua Graupera. Oh, I wasn't or, even close. But Graupera is Okay, is all right, fine. good enough. Yeah. <laughs> good enough for government work, although I don't work for the government. Uh, Josh is an arts and media organizer with the Stadium Stompers, a coalition of community members and Temple University students and faculty that is fighting to stop Temple from building, get this, a 35,000-seat football stadium in the middle of an African-American neighborhood. Josh also participates in the 40, 40th Street Artists in Residence Program at the University of Pennsylvania and the African-American Museum in Philadelphia Art and Social Change Residency. Josh. Stormy, Stormy Kelsey is a student at, at Temple University pursuing a degree in media studies and production. She works as a media educator for a nonprofit organization, the University of, Com of Community Collaborative, where she teaches high school students to create media through a social justice lens. Throughout the years, how many years could have been, but anyway, <laughs> throughout the years, she has helped produce films on many topics, including youth homelessness, environmental justice, and gentrification, Stormy. Michael O'Brien, Mike, is Youth Arts Program Manager at the Village of Arts and Humanities. 
Mike is a music teacher at New Freedom Theater. <coughs> Mike is passionate about integrating the arts, public health, and trauma-induced care to advocate for youth rights and social change in underserved communities. Mike is an Urban Innovation Fellow at Drexel University's Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation. Last, but certainly not least, Tishka Smith is a photographer, blogger, and creator of the Racism is a Sickness art installation and community engagement projects. Over the last six years, her work has been featured online in print and in galleries and other community spaces on the East Coast and in the Midwest. Her overall body of work explores racial and civic identity formation, how memories and values are shaped, and the impact that marginalization of people and ideas has on gentrifying neighborhoods. So let's give it up for our speakers. <laughs> Just so you know, the reason why we have the uh, mic set up is that this event is being recorded for a future uh, podcast on the art blog. Is everyone familiar with the art blog? No? Okay, okay. Google it. <laughs> okay. On December 8, 1956, the Miles Davis Quintet, featuring Miles Davis trumpet, John Coltrane tenor saxophone, Red Garland piano, Paul Chambers bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums, performed at the Blue Note. The set was featured on the Mutual Network live radio um, broadcast, Bandstand USA, as you all were coming in, a recording of that night was being played. That same night, December 8, 1956, the police raided the Blue Note, which was one of a handful of racially integrated night spots in Philadelphia. As such, it was the target of police harassment. Both the owner and the musicians resisted efforts to shut down the club because of the color of the skin of its patrons. The Philadelphia Tribune reported on the police raid on Tuesday, December 11, 1956. Legendary trumpeter Louis Armstrong performed at many venues in Philadelphia, including the Earl Theater in Ciro's. He never performed at the Blue Note, because the Blue Note opened in the 1950s, and by the 1950s, Armstrong was so big that the Blue Note set 400 people. So it was too small for him. He probably stopped by after gig at the Earl Theater, but he never performed at the Blue Note. In 1929, Satchmo asked, what did I do to be so black and blue? Spring's on his legs. Feel like old dead. Wished I was dead. What did I do to be so black and blue? Mm. Even the mouse ran from my house. They laugh at you, scorn you too. 
ready to do to be so black and blue. Yes, yes I'm like inside. That don't help my case. I can't hide what is in my face. But I would it in. Ain't got a friend. My only sin is in my skin. Armstrong sang, My Only Sin is in My Skin. Last week, with Sean Nelson and Dante Robinson, whose only sin is in their skin, were arrested for waiting while black at Starbucks. The Philadelphia Tribune published stories about the arrest on Tuesday, April 17, 2018. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson has since announced 8,000 company-owned stores will close on the afternoon of May 29th to, quote, conduct racial bias education geared toward preventing discrimination in our stores. Tiska. The Starbucks arrest made us all sick to our stomach. You created the Racism is a Sickness art installation Tell us about the project and what inspired you to create it. Thank you for, first of all, I want to thank you, Faith, for having me on the panel today. And yes, um, I created this project that I called Racism is a Sickness back in 2016. And it was, I hate to use the word inspired, because it didn't, I wasn't inspired by the events of what happened in McKinney, Texas. I don't know if you all are aware of, um, the police officer, Eric Casebolt, who tackled um, then 14-year-old DeJera Becton. And the video was, um, went viral um, that summer. And I saw it, and I'm a mother of two daughters, and I saw it, and it pissed me off so bad <laughs> that I wanted to use my platform, use my art um, to make a statement and to engage particularly white people around the the question of, of silence around state-sanctioned violence and to incorporate symbols, American symbols, to really critique um, what I call the overreach of police power in this country and to also kind of look at how um, racism is this insidious um, form of injustice that infects us all. So I assembled 14 people, put out an open call, and 14 people responded, and I photographed them, interviewed them, and um, hung an upside-down American flag, symbolizing the distress that this country was in back then, and um, also kind of used that as, a <laughs> as an opportunity to predict where we are now politically in this country. Right? The overreach of police power has opened the doors to a form of authoritarianism 
um, that you know we can't <laughs> quite corral at this point. Um, so to make a long story short, 14 people, um, half were white, half were black, half were male, female, um, representative of folks all around Philadelphia. Um, talk to me about racism. I asked them questions, a question set. And I asked them to identify on a surgical mask the aspect of racism that they struggle with the most. And I photographed them wearing that mask. And I also asked them to bring in an artifact that represented um, a memory that they had, their earliest memory of race. And some people were photographed with those objects in front of this upside down American flag. And the symbolism of all that represents the fact that we're all affected by racism. And white silence in particular leaves us vulnerable as a country um, to a point where we now have a president <laughs> who has, um, you know, has, is like the embodiment of the question that Louis Armstrong asked many years ago. What did I do to be so black and blue? My only sin is, is in our skin, but it's in the skins of everyone. So that project um, traveled to three venues in Philadelphia. It first stopped at the Art Church of West Philadelphia for a month, and then from there went to the Community College of Philadelphia for a week, talked to hundreds of students, was confronted by veterans who felt some kind of way about the upside down flag being hung, and then from there went to the Ethical Society of Philadelphia. And um, coinciding with that, I engage folks on social media. I have um, basically social media channels for um, the project, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, website. What is the handle? Uh, Where can they find okay. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, And, you know, people still engage with the project to this day, but, you know, the, the point of the project is really to investigate white silence, which creates this space for police overreach, state-sanctioned violence against black and brown bodies, and a form of authoritarianism that is continuously eroding our rights as citizens. So everyone has skin in the game. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's just very pertinent that the arc of, of history and jazz and art brings us to this moment where we're still grappling with some of the same questions. But, my focus as an artist was really to kind of look at the other side, to, to place some responsibility and accountability on those who benefit the most from um, systems of oppression in this country, particularly in this country. Okay. That's why I incorporate the American flag the way I did. Mike. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> as you may know, a new study from the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing found that among black men in Philadelphia, who have suffered traumatic injuries, most psychological symptoms are not treated. Now you work at the intersection of performance art, public health, and trauma-informed care. How are you using art to address trauma in the African-American community? Yeah, uh, large question. <laughs> we got big issues. Uh, yeah, 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 I'm with it. Uh, just one quick um, thing. I think I might have sent the wrong bio, so that's my fault. I am not currently at Freedom Theater. I was until 2014, but I am not currently at Freedom Theater. I did put in almost about seven years there. Uh, I have a lot of love for uh, the energy of that space and the founders and whatnot. Um, the way that I 
particularly use art. Um, it's a couple of ways, right? A lot of times people have a hard time processing their emotional lives. Um, there's no language for it for them, right? You don't magically build uh, emotional language or the words to describe your feelings and what's happening around you and to process that or to share that with another human being. You don't just develop that because you're aging or quote unquote maturing or your body's getting longer and your voice is getting deeper. Uh, and there's a demand as you increase in age for you to be able to do that. And so a lot of my work is, uh, I think, one piece. I was going to say primarily, but then I was going to say primarily nine more times, I'm sure. So <laughs> I'll just say that one piece is around helping people develop that language. Uh, and the way that I find people can best develop that language is when they are not in moments of stress, when they are, in fact, engaging in uh, reflective process, and can really think about, uh, they have the mental bandwidth, if you will, to think about and invest in understanding where they're at in a moment, in a given moment, and being able to do that with another person is really important, particularly a person who can help stretch that vocabulary, expose them to new vocabulary. Uh, because if you think about it in context, when someone gets into a conflict, and we want them to be able to use words, we typically say, particularly if they're young people, use your words, uh, but if the words aren't there, they're probably cussing you out in their head. They're not gonna probably say it out loud, but they're kind of like, eh, I mean, I feel you, but I'm also upset. And that's the wrong moment to then try to teach them language. In fact, when somebody is stressed and or showing a direct stress response, that is absolutely the wrong moment to teach them anything because the body is not set up to learn in those moments. It's set up to respond to any stimuli around it that it is perceiving as a threat, emotional or physical. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a literal threat. So if, if you, Faye, don't perceive something to be a threat, but I do, and you're trying to get me to learn something, it really doesn't matter what your perception is in that moment because I'm the learner. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very hard thing for people, and I think that's the second piece that I try to use uh, art and art-making processes for, is to get people to step outside of themselves and understand that perception can be a great thing, but it can also be a huge hindrance. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be uh, full of intent mm -hmm. um, and extra intentional with how you are engaging and building relationship with anybody um, and recognizing that Humanity is limited to an extent, uh, and what I mean by that in particular is that when we don't know something, our brains don't just stop working. Mm -hmm. They actually pull from what's already in there and the uh, experiences that we've gathered over the years and the cultural and institutional knowledges that have been uh, feeding the unconscious spaces and the conscious spaces as well, and it's going to arrive at a conclusion. That doesn't mean it solved the problem, it mm -hmm. just means it, it's arrived at something that it believes you can use to move you to the next step. That doesn't mean that it's the right thing or that it's a full thing in and of itself, mm -hmm. but it's full enough 
to itself for you to use for the purposes of getting to the next step. So are you using music, the digital arts, we, how would you to develop stuff, that language? Right? What are so, you doing? So it's narrative-based, a lot of it, but it's also um, process-based. So it's music. So at the Village of Arts and Humanities, it's a number of things. It's music, it's photography, it's clay and ceramics, it's sometimes web design and web building, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of the work that our young people and even the adults in our neighborhood are involved in, they're not involved in making art for the sake of art. The art is vehicular, right? So they're involved in using art in a way that allows them to talk to somebody uh, or somebody's, lots of people, to then actually go through some of the process building mm -hmm. work that I was just describing, right? <laughs> if I need to understand the history of redlining in my neighborhood, and we have an intergenerational group of 14 to 65-year-olds there, everybody's got a dialogue and learn from each other in a new way. And the easiest way to do that is a way that allows for people to communicate across barriers. Mm -hmm. And art can really do that. It'd take 30 more minutes to explain that deeply, but we use a number of ways. Mm -hmm. because the per It's about the person making sure they have an authentic connection to the method in a way that is not scaring them. Mm -hmm. We use, we've over-industrialized art to the point where now people are afraid. I ask a young person to sing a song, they'll say to me, oh, I don't sing like Beyonce. Nothing wrong with Beyonce, that's great. I think she's wonderful. Uh, but when did that become the standard for participation in a classroom? Like that's the awkward part mm. that we've got to deal with. Not whether or not Beyonce is a standard, that's a separate conversation, but the idea of standard around participation in simple places where art is your right as a human being, that's what we got to work out. Thanks, Mike. Stormy, you know, Stormy, I can't think of, can't even say your name without thinking Stormy Monday. <laughs> Anyhow, Stormy, you know, yesterday was the national school walkout to protest um, gun violence. You work with young people. Are they concerned about gun violence? And what are you, how are you using art, your art, filmmaking, media production to amplify their voices? Well, to answer the first question, question yes, um, our young people are concerned about gun violence, and I think for a lot of them, like when before, um, like before we actually dive into dive into the conversation, a lot of them. But when when you think of um, gun violence, especially with like Philadelphia um, young people, they the first thing they think of is like gun violence on their, in their neighborhood and gun violence, like um, you know, like their their friend who got shot and. They think, oh, you know, but that's just the way it is. You know, like, it happens every day. But then when we have these larger issues, like, not to, not to minimize that, like, the, those, like, incidents are definitely occurring, like, as an epidemic. But when they think about schooling and when they think about mass shootings, like, I think that they become more concerned about it. And we're actually um, creating a project. Um, Can everyone hear? Okay. Oh, is this for, this works for, oh, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, so we're, we actually have an upcoming project of surrounding gun violence where we're going to be talking to folks from um, Ceasefire PA and um, um, I'm blanking on the other organization. But they've, done, they've been doing like a lot of research surrounding um, gun control, gun issues, and they were definitely out on the march and protesting and everything. Um, 
and what was I'm what sorry, is the project? You said you worked on a oh, it's a, it's a short documentary. So our episodes are kind of a part of like thirty minute episodes. So this is. So this 30-minute episode is about youth re resiliency, um, and then the segment we're going to be interviewing folks from organizations that are doing work around um, gun violence, particularly with um, other young people in Philadelphia. Okay. Where, to 30-minute episode, where is it aired? Our, our episodes air on public access TV, so for Philly Cam, um, uh, channels 69 and... 66 and 79, I think, um, for depending on what provider you have. And we also are on YouTube. All of our episodes YouTube? are on YouTube okay. at What's Poppin', P-O-P-P-Y-N. Say that again. Poppin', P-O-P-P-Y-N, What's Poppin'. Okay. Thanks, Dominique. Josh. Josh's projects are very near and dear to my heart. Josh, tell us about the stadium stompers and the um, African-American Museum in Philadelphia Art and Social Change Residency. Just so you all know, Josh is the museum's first art and social change fellow. So first, Stadium Stompers, sure. and then um, the Art and Social Change okay. Fellowship. Sure. Um, can you all, all hear me? Now we can. Okay, great. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, Stadium Stompers is about two and a half years old, um, and it's a coalition group of um, North Central residents, um, Temple students, and allies. Um, and, and I'll stop right there because that's, for a moment, because that's actually a really big deal uh, in, of its, in of its own. Um, generally, um, there's a culture that's been created by the university to separate students from the community in which they inhabit. Um, and Stadium Stompers' first uh, meeting was, was a unification of, of groups that have historically been, been separated. Um, it has not been an easy uh, uh, kind of intermingling of folks, but um, we have learned to work and trust and build relationships with each other in this really dynamic way. Um, we, uh, we meet every second and fourth Wednesday at the Church of the Advocate um, from 6 to 7.30, and that has very much been um, the basis of our groundwork outside of going door to door and talking to folks. But um, in the in the two two and a half years, or rather, about the first year year and a half, two years, um, Temple University was really hush hush about the stadium plans. They were trying to make it seem like nothing was happening, or it was a done deal. There's nothing that could be done. Um, so you know, we, we were we were getting we would get attention. Um, we were able to um, really develop a presence. Um, uh, in North Central, and we didn't go anywhere. Um, so eventually, uh, President Engler, the president of Temple University, announced that the stadium deal was going to be moving in full force into the public phase, where they were going to get city approval to um, build the stadium, as well as close 15th Street for it to be built. Um, uh, once that happened, um, it was almost like a tidal wave. So I'd say all of the all of the the groundwork that we'd been doing, 
um, all of our meetings that we, you know, we, we carried on, our, but our numbers exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now I think, you know, a week doesn't go by where you see something about stadium stompers in, in the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, I, I feel very fortunate to be part of, part of a, 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 such a powerful group. Um, and we organize out of the Church of the Advocate, which is a historic mm-hmm. uh, landmark in the heart of North Philly in of itself. So just to even in, in, in terms of, you know, a physical space to be welcomed in, in a place like the Church of the Advocate, I, I get chills. I, you know, you can't see them now, but um, uh, it's, it's, it's been a real honor. Um, Actually, the fifth chair, the empty chair, is for Pastor Renee, so hopefully she'll be able to um, join us. But um, Josh, tell us, now you've done some creative things with the um, um, Stadium Stompers, including you introduced the community to the Temple's Board of Trustees, did you not? Yes. Um, so one of our, I think, more playful actions was to, um, we, we had been targeting the, the Board of Trustees at Temple University. There's about 40 of them, but there's kind of like a main nine that are especially despicable, um, super rich, you know, they make their money from pharmaceuticals, all big corporations, you name it. Um, we, we had been kind of um, antagonizing them outside of their meetings for about a year or so, uh, and we decided to um, bring in political theater. So we printed out big, you know, faces of each one of the folks. We all dressed up in, in the best clothing we could grab and um, pretended to be these people. and. Um, lay out all of our shady financial ties um, to the public. Um, that was a telling, mo- that action was actually a telling moment for us because, you know, usually when we would have a stadium stompers event, we wouldn't get much of a response from the university or the police. However, this time there was a police barricade and police lined around the entire uh, Sullivan Hall. Um, so we had, we realized at that moment that um, people were starting to take us more seriously, and uh, I think now they're really starting to take us seriously. And actually, that's an understatement. They're taken so seriously. The Board of Trustees is meeting on May 1st. Normally, they meet in Sullivan Hall on Temple's main campus. On May 1st, they're going out to Ambler <laughs> to try to get away from the stadium stompers. But SEPTA goes to Ambler. Yeah. So just before, we're going to ask one more uh, round of questions because this is a community conversation. I know Judith has something she wants to say. Well, <laughs> and so we ask her one more and then we're going to open it up to the um, community. So Josh, just tell us because it's, it's, it's so impactful. Tell us about the social, the art sure. and social change fellowship. Sure, yeah. Um, just real quick because I didn't know that they were going to meet at Ambler. We're until having, now. yeah, until just now, until oh. you just said that. We're well, having a <laughs> we are having a march and rally May first uh, at three o'clock. Or I'm sorry, three thirty at Sullivan Hall to mm-hmm. march to City Hall. So it makes perfect sense why they would. They know. They know. They know. Mm-hmm. So thanks. Thanks for that information. Mm-hmm. Pop so. one <laughs> Um The art and social change residency is something that is still very new to me. I think new, well, new to the museum. It's it's a brand new program, um, and myself and another participant are um, 
kind of uh, guinea pigs of a sense, right? Um, so it's a very <laughs> quick project, um, which makes me uncomfortable. It's three months, um, which I feel is barely enough time to really uh, build trust, but um, it's a discovery grant, so it's a way for um, the African American Museum um, and uh, and its partners in Logan, which are, are the Rush Art Space and the Logan Library, um, to to create a platform and a program for how uh, Black artists can um, interject their ideas uh, with with a community. Right? Um, and I, I feel that the work that I've done as an object maker, as an artist, as a painter, um, and my organizing skills through stadium stompers um, are being challenged at the same time. Um, so uh, I'm scared, okay. uh, but I'm also very, uh, very fortunate and um, so, um, uh, it's, I'll be working, right now I'm, I'm looking into the history of Logan Triangle, um, which is the largest uh, open lot in the city. It's 43 acres, um, and there used to be uh, 950 homes uh, built on top of that space. Uh, there's a long history to it, but essentially the houses started sinking, uh, and the city demolished them. Of course, it was a vibrant African-American community at that time. The, the demolition uh, created a pretty obvious scar in the neighborhood. You can see it on, the, on Google Maps. Um, and it's been sitting dormant for uh, 25, 30 years and looks like it could be sitting dormant for another 20 years. Um, and there's a lot of development uh, project being proposed, but it's very unclear how much is actually community supported. Um, so my goal is to get a better understanding of what the community input is around that space. Um, and uh, you know, while, while my residency is not very long, I hope that I'm able to continue the project. Okay. Um, as noted, Artists reflect the times in which they live. And we are living in some difficult times. Philadelphia is in the national spotlight because of the Starbucks arrest. So I want each of you to just tell us how, as an artist, how do you plan, how will you respond to the Starbucks arrest? Let's just go down the line, beginning with Tishka? <laughs> well, since I've been interrogating like state-sanctioned violence and the overreach of law enforcement, you know, what happened at Starbucks didn't really surprise me, um, <laughs> in part because in a lot of ways, um, corporations and folks with wealth have amassed enough power to be able to use the police to enforce, you know, to enforce their power position in this country. So it just, you know, when I heard about it, I wasn't surprised. So the thing that I've done is, I guess not to stay silent, but I've been engaging people just individually in conversations, but 
I don't want to lose, I don't want, I, I don't want this to be a distraction from the work that I, I do in neighborhoods. So this is probably something that I will interrogate. I'm going to Indiana next month to do a, a short residency um, sponsored by the Evansville Vandenberg Public Library System. So um, Evansville is a mid-sized city in southern Indiana. And um, I'm interested in Evansville because um, gentrification is happening there. And I've, I've always been curious as to how gentrification takes shape in mid-sized cities um, that were once, you know, industrial blue collar um, cities that are now trying to figure out how to reinvent themselves. Um, so you find like corporate, you know, corporations like Starbucks, Jimmy John's, popping up in places like Evansville, and what does that mean for a community like Evansville? Um, so, I, you know, I plan on asking residents there, you know, what is home for them? And um, what does it feel like to witness economic, socioeconomic shifts, corporations coming and displacing mom and pop businesses, displacing residents, and having that conversation and hopefully empowering young people in particular to express themselves you know, through, through the visual medium. I'll be teaching a boot camp on street photography and asking young people to you know, photograph flashpoints in their neighborhood that represent that tension. Um, so for me, Starbucks is just another flashpoint. It's just one, it's, it's, a, it's a flashpoint, a long <laughs> series of, you know, Incidences that you know that keep pushing boundaries, keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, and at some point, the question becomes, what are we going to do to push back? And you know, I'm, I'm very honored to be sitting up here with, with Josh and Michael and Stormy, um, but I always say in the work that I do with with people, do something, whatever it is, something big, something small, doesn't have to be an exhibit, doesn't have to be you know, an organizing effort, but just, you know, if you start, if you hear someone saying something that is offensive, or hear someone, you know, making a comment that's disparaging about a group, check them. You know, that's one thing that you can do to push back. Um, so I've always, you know, I've always been focused on meeting people where they are and understanding that everyone has, doesn't have the courage to get up and do something big, mm -hmm. but we all have the means to be able to do something. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's pretty mm -hmm. much my response to Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. When um, earlier, for those who came in a little bit later, talked about everyone having skin in the game um, of addressing racism and, you know, pick an issue, gentrification, displacement, um, cultural heritage erasure, that when you think about the role of allies, and if it weren't for Melissa DePino, if she had not taken that video and shared it, no one would have believed that two, two quote, two gentlemen can, within two minutes, two minutes of the arrival, calling 911, and the whole episode incident unfolding in less than six minutes. Josh, how, are you, how do you plan to address this? Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I've, been, I've been watching the videos of, um, of 
the Black and Brown Workers Collective, uh, Cooperative um, and Power shutting down Starbucks. And, um, uh, you know, I used to be an artist who, who would make rapid response images to current events, and um, it's not something I'm as interested in anymore, um, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and I, I think part of that is this kind of in the same vein that you were saying is, is like, well, I'm interested in meeting folks where they're at, um, and I meet people at, I meet people where they're at through, through the work that I, that I do. So, um, while it won't be specifically to that, um, I, I, it just emboldens me to work more with Stadium Stompers. Uh, with the Church of the Advocate, uh, another campaign that's out of the church called the Sanctuary Advocate Coalition, um, because the work that we're doing there is also fighting violence. It's a different kind. And gentrification plays a huge role in setting up and allowing a situation uh, that happened at that Starbucks to happen. Um, so, um, yeah, I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw more of my chips in to... to um, the fights that I already believe in. Mike, you know, we have all been traumatized by the Starbucks events. I think this why has been such a, a response to it because we can all see ourselves in that situation. I'm a walker, I'm always looking for um, a bathroom. So, how? Yeah. We're no. traumatized, help. <laughs> so I, I think there's, there's two layers to this, if you don't mind, I just want to take a quick stab at that first sure. question, uh, because I think it leads into the second question. Um, the, the thing that bothered me the most, probably, was the response of the police. Uh, I could have thought, I, I, I kept watching the video and like coming up with different ways this could have played out and writing it down. And I think the power of art or the power of the imaginative faculty that we've been like flexing for a long time as a muscle, as creatives, um, is that we can kind of quickly iterate and think of things with design constraints and come up with rapid conclusions that are not the thing that's in front of us. Uh, because I go, if arresting was off the table, what else would you have done? because you could have took the cuffs off when he got outside. We have all seen cops stop somebody on the side of the road. They probably stopped some of you in the audience and said things like, listen, I'm supposed to give you a ticket for that, but I'm not going to get your taillight fixed and go on about your business. I'm trying to understand the logic in bringing these men in, fingerprinting them, getting their photos, have the photos been destroyed, have the fingerprints been destroyed, because we know how photos get used in lineups that also connects to this other situation with David O and that whole situation. Like, th this is just so egregious, mm. but not disconnected from so much. And I'm, I'm actually rather confused, and actually I'm a bit scared because it just seems over and over again that like being black and brown in this city is to be constantly trolled. And a friend of mine online even said, no, it's to constantly kind of live in terror. And that's not new. This is, so now to get to trauma, this is historical trauma. In 67, the then chief of police, Rizzo, is on record saying that it was okay and encouraging his staff to beat up black children who were protesting segregation in the school district. I, I, we've never quite been safe in this country 
excuse me, I'll remove quite. We've never been safe in this country in relationship to law enforcement, and the conversation is just very shallow, and I don't understand why. And I don't, I'm trying to figure out now how do we aggressively use art to do two things, to continue agitating an issue that, in respect, the mayor ran on. He said he wanted to end stop and frisk. None of us put that in his mouth. And I, I respect his positionality, and I, this is not antagonistic, and I hope he hears it. I'm going to go through, Say it loud. Go through well, I'm going through also back channels while I'm also being public to be like, I think this situation has got to be addressed, and there is no way around it. Because we can't hold Richard Ross accountable for how the police are trained in this city or hold whoever's under him in that space uh, accountable for how police are trained in this city. There's no mechanism for that as a citizen. And I shouldn't walk around terrified in Center City unless I have a relationship with that business or with somebody else. I had a white friend, I put my hood on at the end of uh, a meeting at Lucha Cartel a couple of days ago because I'm going into the cold, and she stopped and just stared at me, and I said, what's wrong? She said, I'm just nervous for you because you go through so many social sectors, and yeah, everybody accepts you, but with a hood on, people just don't know who you are. I don't want you to, I don't want that crap happening to you. And that was the first time I actually had a white person say that to me about a hood, and it actually took me by surprise. And I laughed, and I said, I'm all right. And she said, yeah, but maybe I'm not. And I was like, mm, this is really interesting now, because I've never had this kind of conversation before. But we're the same age, right? So, and I'm ending here. Secondarily, I think this is what people got to do. We got to connect with each other. And, and that doesn't mean that we have, and I, this is not the whole, we got to come together and da, da, da. But it's like, we need to really connect with each other, have conversations, figure out who our allies really are, and get to work. And art can do that. I'm just not sure exactly what the methodology is for me as a practitioner. Stormy? Well, I would say, sorry. I would say for me as, um, as a media maker, like one of the most important jobs is to document and um, like this whole, the Starbucks situation and countless other incidents that have happened, have, we know about them because they've been documented and they've been shared across um, social media. And that is like one of the most important things, one of the most important tools that we have now is to be able to just record something and share with someone else. And that also gives us um, the ability to say, you're not going to erase this. You know, if, if, that, if that had happened without anyone recording it, we wouldn't have known. So and it would have just continued as it, as it does, you know. So I think that, um, yeah, continuing my work and um, with my organization, continuing to just document and share and spread awareness, like this is, this is the work that needs to be done, you know. Thank you. Could, Thank you. could I actually add something sure, real Jack. quick? Just something that Mike said that, Speaking to the mic. Um, so about about coming together, right? Um, actually, Poppin made a great video on uh, about stadium stompers, but we were a small, you know, we we're a small piece. It was a, a larger episode about gentrification. Yeah. Um, so not only, you know, Poppin reached out to us, and not, so not only was that a wonderful moment for us to connect, but it was also some of the best media that I've ever seen about our campaign, but also the conversation of gentrification citywide. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it just makes me think like, 
Yeah, yeah. When we make the connections, we end up better than the people that obviously aren't going to represent us anyway or tell our stories anyway. Yeah. Um, and that's the piece around trauma, real quick. Like, <clears throat> trauma is cyclical. Uh, trauma is pervasive. Uh, typically, the experience of trauma involves you perceiving that whatever is happening to you is a real threat and it's going to make you feel helpless, terrified, it's going to make you feel like you have a huge lack of control. Connecting with other human beings, particularly um, in situations like this where it's getting replayed in front of us all the time, whether we want to encounter it or not, like I can just scroll on Facebook and I'm going, the image is going to come up or the video starts playing. Mm -hmm. I don't even have to press play. Like that, that's aggressive already mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. nature. It's, 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 it's incendiary, really. So being able to connect with another human being is very important, particularly one that can help you to recenter, calm down, can get you to not think about it for a moment, very healthy. Also connecting with someone that is not like you. I had to definitely go out and intentionally connect with some white folk I know who are not like that. Because I had to reground myself. Because mm -hmm. I definitely was walking around for a moment. Like the same thing happened when Donald Trump got elected. Mm -hmm. And I had to give myself time, though. It wasn't the most immediate So you said reground because you were so angry? Oh, I was angry. I was fearful. I was upset. I read a lot, too. So I'm connecting all this history and just like... And just to see the numbers around, dang, that's more people in Philly that voted for Donald Trump than I would have thought would have, particularly with all that crap he's saying. Who is around? Who? Right. Who's my ally? I don't know who I'm looking at. And, I, and so I got hyper vigilant. And then I had to like, okay, that's not healthy either, right? So it, it's being able to like use healthy relationships to really ground you back into the moment, so that it's not that what's happening isn't serious. And it's not that it's not, again, incendiary, infectious, threatening. All of those things are true. But we have sometimes a little more control than it might appear to us or feel. Uh, and we have sometimes more access, even if it's not a ton, we have a little more access than we might feel to do something that can move the needle, at least for us, so that we can be there for our family members and et cetera. Because a lot of us have people in our lives that are relying on us. Like I can't go flip out and go crazy like I might want to because I have a mother that needs me, literally. She's on disability, I help support her. So I gotta stay grounded for that, but also stay grounded so that we are really moving forward and achieving. Mm -hmm. Tishka? Well, I wanted to mention that in the, the same vein of encouraging um, people to, to act, to, to not just react, but to be proactive. In thinking about placemaking, this is something that I, I'm always um, investigating and interrogating, is you know, the actual process of making art and, and, and being more expansive in our thinking about where that should happen. Um, art can be made anywhere, and if you Think about Seth Godin, who talks about art. We're all creative, um, and it's, it's 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 an act of resistance. Like I've, I've interrogated the idea of resistance. Act, you know, making art is an act of resistance because it's something that society tells us it's, it's it has no value, mm -hmm. um, but it can shift, you know, circumstances. It can shift time. It can sh it shift conditions. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it doesn't have to happen in the places where we think it should happen. Or it, sh it, it, it doesn't have to be displayed at places where we think it needs to be displayed. It can be displayed anywhere. It can be done anywhere. It's just a matter of doing something. So I just want to put a point of refinement on that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Tishka just really stated the reason why we're at the Blue Note Salon. An undertold story is really the role that jazz musicians and the jazz culture played in paving the way for the civil rights movement. Jazz was a, about freedom, resistance. The mere fact that when the Philly police raided the Blue Note and they refused to, to stop playing, the, the club owner refused to shut it down, the Philly police actually, they harassed um, the first racially integrated jazz spot in Central City was the downbeat, which was located at, at 11th and Ludlow. The building is actually still there. If you all know, there's a jewelry store, then a dollar slice pizza. Well, at, at that jewelry store, the downbeat was right above there. So the police harassed um, jazz musicians, um, the jazz culture, because it was an act of resistance. It was the first, the way jazz musicians comported themselves. It was the first time whites dealt with blacks on an equal basis. That's why Stanley Crouch wrote that it was a futuristic social force to the point where at the 1964 Berlin Jazz Festival, Dr. Martin Luther King gave credit. He, he, he described jazz as triumphant music and he acknowledged the role that jazz musicians played in opening up um, rights for all. So with that, Let's give it up for our speakers. Now it's on you. Okay. What's on your mind? Not everyone at once. Come on. Judith, may I ask you a question? Are you asking me? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I'm going to ask you. May I ask? Okay. Now, you know, Judith, this is, this, um, discussion was billed as art activism in North Philly. Judith Robinson is very active in, in North Philly. Um, she's a ward leader. She heads um, um, a registered community organization, RCO. That you remember that um, beautiful mural, awesomely awesome Philadelphia? That was at 15th and Parish, I think, no? Well, the, the mural is now covered up. So from your perspective as an activist, in North Philly, knowing the history, the, the cultural heritage in that neighborhood. What's on your mind? Well, I guess... Um, Judith Robertson, y'all. I'm Judith Robertson, and my, I guess the perspective I bring, I'm a real estate broker, and when I hear about gentrification, I'm always interested in it, how other people are thinking of it because I'm trying to convey, listen, straight realism, not art. Even though I'm an artist, I'm a fashion designer by trade before I got into the real estate business. So I understand art very much and still to this day I'm an artist. But I don't get how art is going to deal with housing and shelter. Housing, and everybody needs shelter, okay? Um, it's real in that if you don't pay rent, for instance, you're going to be in the street, this eviction process. So I'm always going to encourage people how to 
stabilize your shelter. So in that regard, when I hear about art and gentrification and all of these, I'm gonna use this word that I really am not liking lately, intersectionality, okay, <laughs> I play it like that, because it seems like to me, black people get lost in this intersectionality process, okay? Whatever racism doesn't become racism as it is with these two young men, it becomes, oh, a human problem. You know, and it's not a human problem, it's black people. Let's say it. Black people are once under attack. Our young black men are under attack. But getting back to this housing issue and how I come to these forums, because I'm opening my mind to try to understand this connection to art and gentrification, because I keep saying gentrification is this mysterious thing that happens. So I'm going to say art is a disconnector. Art is a distraction. Art is obfuscation. Because while you all are doing art, and we're loving art, we're looking at art, meanwhile in Brewery Town, your government, your mayor, your city council is using eminent domain to take people's properties. So that's not something that is cheap and artsy, it's realism happening in your city council. Okay, so I... let me just mm -hmm. make this point. Mm -hmm. If you gentlemen want to scare up your mayor, make it artsy and get about 50 or 100 of young black men, march down the city council and say, hell no, you will not go back into office unless you deal with stopping prison. Otherwise, otherwise, eight years will be over and we'll still be talking about stopping prison, what we wish would have happened. So I don't want to deal with art sometimes. I don't want to make it cute. I want to say raw. This is what you do. Let's make it cute. Maybe put some special shirts on when you go down to city council if you want to add art to it. But if you don't go down to city council, build that stop and frisk with the mayor and city council, then art is like a fantasy world. Oh, that comes in? Okay. Um, yeah. You know you just started a whole thing. Right, well, well, that's why I asked students. Because, no, no, because, no, that's why I asked students because I did notice on your Facebook post, this is about art, activism, and social change. How artists are using art to connect community to social change movements. To, to make a difference. When you think about Billie Holiday's strange, strange Fruit, there was nothing artsy about that. When you think about Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn, nine, four women, that, wasn't, that was art, but there was nothing artsy about that. So I want you all to share how you're using art to connect with social change movements, and be specific about what those movements so it was are. was an art project I worked on that actually was a catalyst to get city council to put a line item in finally around an issue of youth homelessness. They had, the, they had numbers around family homelessness, but they didn't have much around youth homelessness, and trying to drum up the attention, it was, what's up bro, it was concentrated effort through a variety of media that got the attention. We took over a vacant lot. We had open education sessions. And one of the things that I really want to clarify for all of us is the power of art to be an equalizer in terms of access to information. Most people do not even have the energy to want to deal with certain issues because the information that's in their face is not very clear. 
Plus, they have to work. There's all this stuff going on. Then you layer in any of the historical trauma, contemporary and current trauma, chronic stressors that might not be traumatic, but they're just always there. That's a lot of competition for brain space that actively filters out a lot of things so that you can stay sane, really. So for artists, we have this opportunity. Again, go, I'll go back to redlining. If you, so the village is at 2544 Germantown Avenue. The initiatory space was started by Arthur Hall in 1967. It was both art and community economic development. It was not separate, they were fused together. In one move, he purchased a row home through the Model Cities program, renovated the first floor that was a, uh, a storefront, turned it into a dance studio, and opened that space in terms of equal access to everyone. It did not matter if you suffered from addiction or if you were four years old, they had a process and a methodology out of what was then the Ile Ife Black Humanitarian Center uh, and to, to work with folks. Arthur also purchased a bank that was, the, or leased space, one of the two, uh, out of a bank that no longer exists around Germantown in York and had an African-American history museum out of that space. That was his leverage in the neighborhood, both in an economic sense, but also using art and media to impact people's personal lives, but to then drive where the village in the 80s, the name change, where we are now. We're now 10 row homes deep. We are now going in to purchase an 11th. We actually now manage the Germantown Lehigh Commercial Corridor on behalf of the Commerce Department. We're working on an entire homeowners initiative that actually starts with educating about the history of redlining, the contemporary context of what we call gentrification, because you're absolutely right, that word is so open and ambiguous, people don't know exactly what it means, and they think, oh, Temple is driving gentrification, and they don't understand private development. So in their minds, they're trying to assign something somewhere in terms of like who are the players and stakeholders and where should I put my energy, but they're losing energy trying to figure it out. We have an ability to use art and to use our relationships. Art helps us build strong relationships. So now we have these great relationships intergenerationally where we're building out of people's living rooms education sessions around redlining and gentrification and talking to them about their options. Last thing I can say about this, and I can't say too much more, we're internally also looking at our business model. And what does it mean for us to change, to support a community where vacancy is over 20% in terms of homes, and we're talking about home ownership being an issue, the gentrification thing has not completely swallowed that area up. What role can we play as, as a larger anchor institution in supporting people and owning homes? But it is both the marriage of arts and media and making and process plus this ideology around and activity in community economic development that even got us from Arthur's one row home to the 11 we've got today and to the potential for the future. Okay, uh, Josh, hold, hold on dude, Josh. Sure, yeah, um, I just have a couple, couple examples and, and I'll start with one that I actually emulate um, and uh, the Astrid Gates uh, has a project called Project Row Home, which is part art and part economic development. You know, uh, uh, and, and I think really the crux of, of what I would have to say is, um, you know, 
what is your definition of art, right? And that's something Theaster Gates brings to the table. He said, as an artist, he never thought going over tax codes and building codes would be part of his practice, but if that's what he's interested in, it's now your practice, right? Um, I was trained as a really boring, natural landscape painter, right? Like that, that is the, I went to Millersville State School, that's the, that's the program they had. Um, I paint now, but uh, in the last year or so, I'd say about 80% of my practice is, is community organizing. That's, that's my art, right? I, I just happen to be someone who identifies as an artist. I, I have specific skill sets. So I do all of the uh, arts and media for stadium stompers, and, um, and that helps the visibility for our marches, for when we go to city council, all of those things. Um, but ultimately, uh, it is a form of art, and it's to me, right? And, and I think if more artists would look beyond, uh, not, not beyond, but extend their vision of, or their definition of what art could be, or if everyone did, actually, um, I think people wouldn't find it so difficult to get involved in community campaigns and community groups to become a more active citizen. Um, because in, in that it, 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 open, it opens up your mind um, for that. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll end it with one little plug of mine, but after this, um, I'm having a fundraiser at Little Berlin Gallery uh, in Kensington that is a uh, book launch about Stadium Stompers, the Church of the Advocate, and Sanctuary Advocate Coalition. I don't know how to make a book, you know? Like, I... I, I I just worked on it for the last few months. I, I ran it through the community groups. We helped build it together. I screen printed a cover, but that's my art right now. Um, you know, I go home and I go paint, and that's cool. And but it, but it's it's a shifting, I guess, and it, it all depends on how you define what art really is. Tishka, did you? Well, I just want to make a point about this idea that gentrification is some mysterious force that we can't. <laughs> There's been research done, and if you, if you read the book, How to Kill a City, mm. the author, I can't think of his name right now, um, yes, he makes the point that gentrification, there's been a lot of research on gentrification that identifies a formula to how gentr the, the cycle of gentrification happens. There's a start and there's an end point. And my job as a photographer, as a social documentary photographer, is to identify through visually, visual images, the people who get left out of the decisions that happen along that gentrification cycle. To put in the faces of, in front of people in spaces where they go, where my people get left out, you know, you need to take a look at the, at the people you're impacting along the cycle. Um, and so for me, it's about making real something that we all sometimes can't, you know, we can't agree upon when gentrification happens, why it happens, but there is a cycle to it, and it can be disrupted, but we have to have the will, we have to understand who's at the table and who gets left out. Mm -hmm. um, so for me as a photographer, it's about capturing images along the cycle that help us understand how we can disrupt the cycle at, at critical mm -hmm. points. Stormy, did you want to? I just would 
like echo what everyone else has said. I mean, media and art has been used to mobilize people throughout the years. I mean, this is why we have like we have photographs of these things. We have music that have come about um, and inspired movements. So like, um, yeah, I would just say that art has always played a role in like pushing and driving movements. Now, I'm not an artist. I'm a, but I am a lifelong activist. I grew up in Brooklyn in Bed, in Bed Stuy, which is now, don't even get me started on Bed Stuy. It's, it's one of the top 10 gentrifying neighborhoods in the country, but that's where I grew up. But it was the sound of Philadelphia, the music of Gamble and Huff that inspired me. Wake up, every, wake up everybody. So when you think about music, James Brown, Say It Loud, Aretha Franklin, Respect, Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, Stevie Wonders, Happy Birthday, which led to the Dr. King National Holiday. Art inspires people. I don't know where I would be if it weren't for music. And I'm living here now, obviously, and it was my love of music that got me into cultural heritage um, preservation. So when the Philadelphia Housing Authority announced they were going to come, you know, they're moving to Shawswood, to Ridge Avenue. So they were going to come and knock down this building at the corner of um, Ridge and, and Oxford. This building has stood there for over a hundred years. And so in the meeting, they said, oh, knock it down, no cultural significance, no historical significance. And I'm sitting there, mind you, I'm documenting um, Philadelphia's jazz history. Unknown to PHA, that building was formerly in, open in, um, in the 1930s, the Checker Cafe opened there, a jazz club. In the 80s, it, be it became the Checker Club, where you all, you all may recall where Mary, I was not living here at the time, but where Mary Mason would be called. That's the building that PHA wanted to demolish. So they fought me, again, because of my love of music, they fought, they wanted to knock it down. I said, no, you're not, because it is a, it's one of the last um, reminders of Ridge Avenue's jazz history. You're not going to knock it down. So they threw their lawyers, their, their consultants, and you know, I'm a researcher. And so long story short, the state, they, because there's federal money involved, there's a process you have to go through. So the state agreed, the State Historic Preservation um, Office agreed with me that it is of cultural, historical significance. So that's why when you go by Bridge at Oxford today, you see the building has been stabilized. That is the, that's how art informs social change, social movements. So anyhow, but let's, let's move on. Yes, identify yourself. I can't hear you. <laughs> I don't have a mic. Stand up. Yeah. Yes. I get to stand up. That's pretty loud, right? Or maybe the mic. No, don't. <laughs> uh, my name's Pamela Mays McDonald, and I'm relatively new to Philadelphia. It's only been six months. And I'm from Oakland, California. And I want to give you three examples. Uh, I'm an arts advocate, but I've also been an arts administrator for many years in museums, art museums. 
And I have done so much social change through museum exhibitions, and it's all about community organizing. But I want to give you three Oakland, California examples. Um, Oakland, California is, can you hear me or is it really echoing? It's the birthplace of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And many people don't know that the Panthers had their own band. They had a funk band that would go around and do free performances on the streets. And the kids, it was funky, you know? Uh, they, they listened to a lot of James Brown. So the kids and the young people would all come out to hear these free concerts. And at that point, that's where the organizers could speak from the mic themselves to get everybody into the message. So the art was used as a lure. The other thing about the Black Panther Party for self-defense was the art of Amory Douglas, who designed all the posters and things that gave us the image. No one can forget, even in Philadelphia, I don't think, the photo of Huey Newton sitting in that chair. That artistic model um, as a poster on the walls of young African-Americans everywhere inspired people all around the world toward social change, viol I mean positive social change. In Oakland, we don't play around. Um, Oakland is also the birthplace of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I want to, several things I want to say about that, but in terms of art, posters for everybody to take on the marches with them. Artists were standing there, screen printing, multiple, multiple, multi-colored posters, and handing them out. I've got quite a collection of, of posters. Uh, that's one artist's project. Another artist, Ori Original, what he would do is he created, when Trayvon Martin was killed, it's the same crowd of people. We we're all marching around Oscar Grant and that kind of thing. When Trayvon was killed, a poster was made by the same artist with us screen print image of Trayvon's face. And the poster text said, I am Trayvon Martin and my life matters. That was the kickoff. So the third thing I'd like to say is one of the things about gentrification is that as we know about the progress and how gentrification is used, gentrifiers, and this has been documented very carefully in New York City and areas of Brooklyn especially with a, a map, they use nuisance calls to police to create a harassment environment that moves people out. So in Oakland, I've been in really involved in grassroots movements, and we started a group called the Soul of Oakland, because there was a period of time when there were drummers outdoor drumming at an outdoor amphitheater one night to express themselves. It was before quiet hour. Um, and uh, a gentrifier in the neighborhood came down from his high rise and came and tried to take, snatch the drumsticks from the African drummers. And then he called the police, nine police cars showed up. 
they arrested all the drummers and dancers who were outside on his one person's point of view. Turns out he was drunk, he was wrong, there was no ordinance about music. But at the same time, our churches in the black communities that were being gentrified, what the gentrifiers would do is call the police with noise complaints about choir rehearsal. They're making all this noise. Sunday services. We're trying to sleep in the morning and there's all this noise coming on. And so the police officers were being summoned. They were being harassed with calls. So they would, because of their procedures, they had to come. So eventually they started giving tickets and, and fines to the churches. So we started a movement called the Soul of Oakland. And that's, I'm saying it's Amish, it's art, music, uh, visual art, and the Black Lives Matter demonstrations were all acts of performance art. They weren't angry or anything like I see in the rest of the country. They were like ballet. They were, they were just beautiful, um, the way they were organized by the three women who, who started it. Thank you very much. I just want to make a point about mapping. You raised the point about mapping. I use mapping in my work. Um, I spent six weeks in Brewery Town back in 2012. Right on the cusp as things started to shift dramatically. Um, asking residents what their hopes and dreams were for that community, you know, pushing back on the whole renaming of that section of North Philly um, and plotting on a map. Um, my footprint in that community as well as um, residents who had memories of, you know, special moments, you know, mundane times in that neighborhood because the idea is that when, you, when gentrification happens, people are coming into a blank slate. So well, I wanted to push back against that through the mapping component of my time in Brewery Town. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Betty? Introduce yourself. Introduce yourself. And I Something that can be more, as you 
place, whether it is diaspora or indigenous Africans. And if you sit down in a particular circle that's playing particular rhythms, you sit down because you know those rhythms. Now, to the untrained ear, yeah, it may sound different, but it existed before. And drum circles, there's no problem when they Betty talked about drumming. Thank you, Betty. Talked about drumming circles. Now, some of you all may recall, was it this year or last year when um, Councilman, I believe it was Mark Swiller, um, had planned or planned or had actually introduced a bill to um, ban drumming in Central City. The artist pushed back. He, of course, he didn't, if he knew or didn't care about the history of drummers being banned, um, dating back to slavery. So artists have always really been the vanguard of the movement, whatever the movement. You talk about the uh, Black Panthers, it was their artwork that got folks um, motivated. And um, the, the thing with gentrification, no one wants to be displaced. And, and, and again, gentrification, as, as Siska noticed, does not happen in a vacuum. Um, it's, 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 it's a lack of respect of that which came before, that these gentrifiers come into a uh, community like nothing, nothing happened. So you have in Harlem now, um, so really a sad, um, sad, sad situation. But um, on the corner of 125th Street and 8th Avenue, there was this beautiful glass mosaic, the spirit of Harlem mural that was first Capital Bank sponsored it. So it was um, installed in maybe early 2000s. So here you have foot action 
um, a subsidiary of Foot Locker. So Foot Action comes in, now on 125th Street, to almost diagonal to the Apollo Theater. So this beautiful mosaic right there in the corner, what does Foot Action do? They cover it. They cover it. And I went to school at City College of New York, so grew up in Bed-Stuy and spent a lot of time in, um, in Harlem. And so where art, again, has led me to cultural heritage preservation. Well, are you crazy? So of course I live on Twitter. And so immediately got on Twitter and asked for the action. What are you doing? Because I believe in public, because it really works. Um, shaming really, naming and shaming really does work. And I hate to be called out on Twitter, which is why I do it. And so, um, so there's a group Save Harlem, and so we mobilize and just um, hammering foot action. Long story short, as it turns out, that um, corporate uh, crap that they um, put there, they really just covered it up. They didn't do any damage to maybe some ends. So in the next few weeks, it will be there, there, there will, it will be, if you go there now, you'll see under restoration. So in the next few weeks, it will be uncovered. But again, it was artists recognizing the role of art and storytelling and our cultural heritage um, um, preservation. But this corporate giant thinking it could just come to 125th Street and just cover it up. So anyhow, we're, we're near the end, so we're gonna have some closing comments and then Rashida's gonna take us out. Right, Rashida? Okay, so Mike and then after Mike we'll just go and have closing sure, thoughts. Yeah. So I just want to lift up the other side of art. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about art from like the black perspective mm -hmm. and white America and white people in the country have used art as well for a very long time. Mm -hmm. The original Birth of a Nation was a film that was used to propagate and put out some very particular images and stories about black people. And breathe new life yeah. into the KKK. And yeah. you know, you can continue on down the legacy of decades after decades after decades of this kind of propaganda being used. But the moment to me where I think it takes off to the next level is around the same time that Ronald Reagan's coming into office and around the time that media is shifting as we know it. It's close. At that time, media is shifting to becoming closer to what we know, as opposed to media being like books and magazines, mm -hmm. right? You have a move of think tanks pushing forward pretty semi-bogus research, or very biased and slanted research around taxes, around the drug uh, issues, the war on drugs is emerging, and it's the branding campaigns around them that actually made the difference. It was the moniker of the welfare queen and the imagery that was used connected to it that really pushed people to do something different in terms of how they would vote, how they would think about talking to their legislators, right? And then if anyone's seen the 13th, you hear the quotes directly from them. It's not even like we're not hiding it. But Grover Norquist is like the, was the mastermind behind this stuff, right? So I'm learning about this in my early 20s and stunned. And what's fascinating is where we're at now, and the left is still trying to figure out, how do we use art and media to mobilize? And I'm just like, wow, guys, they've been beating us for 40 years in this game. Mm -hmm. An Oakland young man ended up a scandalous story. He used to direct the Ryan Coogler on the Black Panther film. Mm -hmm. And so it, this is a child who's born into it and then created Black Panther, which today, I don't know, I don't know what it says to gentrification, mm -hmm. so I didn't. Yeah. 
but it's certainly empowered people. Yeah. But it's that piece around art and consciousness yeah. and the emotions, and people vote on emotion, they don't vote on logic. Okay, we can do it because we have done it. You think of the role of music. I always get back to music because the DJ saved my life last night. <laughs> uh, you think the role of music in the civil rights movement. Uh, but a couple of people mentioned with the Starbucks sit-in power this week. I was part of that sit-in. And it was so much, it was so much fun singing, singing, singing those civil rights songs. So art, music is always, it's how we got over. Last thought, Stormy. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's how we got over in any resistance, in any movement, like that you use music to continue the spirit, to continue to uplift. And I think that's why it's so important that we don't um, dismiss it, like it's violent in our, in our struggle. And um, yeah, I think that that's like the most important thing about like art and art and change. Josh? Um, oh, I just went blank. <laughs> well, while you're thinking, I know Tishka. So I, I came to um, photography, well, no. I got my first camera at 13. My dad is a hobbyist and I watched him photograph moments in my personal history, um, family events, and I wanted to be like my dad, and he got me a camera. My first camera was a film camera, little point shoe, John. And I've been taking pictures ever since. I don't know where my life would be without art. My influences include Gordon Parks, who was a major force in documenting the civil rights movement. So. Um, I'm gonna to continue to use art to encode messages that empower people. I'm going to continue to use art to, as a form of self-expression, and I will continue to use art to empower young people to do the same. And, you know, like I said, encouraging people to do something is the end game for me, and I hope it's the end game for all of us. Mm -hmm. Josh? Um, I, I guess I would leave my last thought would be something that I think about quite often, and I don't know how to go about it, but uh, it kind of studying history and studying uh, white supremacy and the, and the far right, and especially recently, um, you know, it kind of has this like almost evil genius kind of tendency, and, and I, I've noticed how the right is able to connect people and resources and really terrible legislation in ways that you would never expect them to be connected. I think um, like the bathroom bill in North Carolina was actually just a very tiny part of a larger tax bill. How can we do that on the other end, right? That's, that's the question and I don't, I don't know because so much of the work that needs to be done is done after people have made a living Right? Um, we don't have the same resources. Mm -hmm. in, a, in many ways, we have better resources and better people power, but um, as we continue trying, all of us trying to build what we want to see in a more just world, how do we share resources, share uh, information, and share capacity so that we no longer compete for each other for this 
compete with each other for, for institutional, white institutional funds, right? Like, and, and that's part of, I think that's part of it, right? And, um, and, and I would say that's part of why, as an artist, like, I'm dedicated to use whatever funds or backing or cap, it, cultural capital to bring it back down to the ground, right? Because I think it's really easy to just end up in a bubble somewhere. Um, um, yeah. Well, thank you. Let's thank our speakers, our panelists.